0: Hallelujah. What a Savior. It's a great joy and privilege to come here and share God's Word with you. I bring you greetings from the Capitol Baptist Church. Uh, Pastor Nathan is one of my favorite pastors in all of D.C. He's been such a great encouragement, and you guys know his ministry, to, to several, many pastors, uh, especially pastors who are uh, desiring to church plant, our church planting. And so just know that you guys have one of the best pastors in all of D.C., in my opinion. So, Thank you so much, Pastor Nathan, for inviting me to speak and share God's Word with you. Uh, let me pray briefly one more time, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, bless the reading, preaching, and hearing of your Word for your glory. Father, cause us to delight in your Word. I bring conviction, faith, and repentance through your Word, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What can miserable Christians do? Sing, asks Carl Truman in his well known essay. In it, he recognizes that life has a sad, melancholy, and painful dimension, which is too often ignored and sometimes even denied in our churches. He highlights that there is a major deficiency in the Western evangelical Christian worship and argues, and I quote, perhaps the Western church is sadly deluded about how healthy it really is in terms of its numbers, influence, And spiritual maturity. Or perhaps this is more likely that it has drunk so deeply at the well of modern Western materialism that it simply does not know what to do with such cries and lamentations. Nevertheless, God has given the church a language which allows it to express even the deepest agonies of the human soul in the context of worship. Close quote. I think Dr. Truman has a point. No matter what seasons of life, the ups and downs, the joys and sorrows, in triumphant symphonies or melancholic laments, Christianity is a faith that sings. Amen? Because if I'm honest, there are many weeks when I walk into church with a heavy heart, stressed, tired, feeling underappreciated, overwhelmed, worried, anxious, How about you? Maybe you could relate uh, to those Sundays. How do you sing when you're burdened with life? When you're weighed down by sin or bothered by broken relationships? Saddened by disappointments? Frustrated with unmet desires and even unanswered prayers? Maybe closed doors? When it seems like you're in a perpetual holding pattern waiting for something to change? Do you look around and wonder how others have it all together? Do you pretend to put your best foot forward and smile your way through this difficult season of discontentment? How do you find joy in seasons like these? Well, brothers and sisters, take courage because I want to remind you that this is a congregation full of broken and needy sinners just like you. And I have good news for you this morning. Our passage uh, speaks to us and reminds us of the reasons why we sing. The reason why we can rejoice even in the midst of great despair. In our text this morning, we see a group of people, although in complete despondency, they are singing a hopeful song, a joyful song. But how? How can miserable Christians sing such songs of thanksgiving and joy and praise? Throughout the centuries, through suffering, through hardship, and even through judgment. Well, our passage tells us how. So this morning, wherever you are, or however you came, be reminded this morning from Isaiah 12 of the joys we have in God in the midst of our troubles. Here's the outline so you know where we're headed. Number one, the joy of salvation. Number two, the joy of worship. And number three, the joy of evangelism. Salvation worship, and evangelism. I pray that these reminders of God's grace and provision will encourage you to be strengthened in hope and trust in our Lord Jesus Christ, and I pray that you will find refreshment and satisfaction in the joys presented in our passage today. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me there, Isaiah 12, and uh, let me give you some context as you turn to Isaiah 12. The book of Isaiah is one of the most important books of the Old Testament, it's quoted or referred to in the New Testament more than 200 times. It's, some, uh, it's known to some people as the Little Bible, so 66 chapters. And there's more details to that, but it's kind of cool that way. It was written around 740 uh, to 680 BC. It's a book of prophecy in which God speaks through a chosen servant named Isaiah, which unironically means God saves to bring a message of judgment. The people of God had turned death a deaf ear to God's words, instead of serving and trusting the one true God, they offered up meaningless sacrifices and committed injustice, injustices to their own neighbors. They turned to trust other kings and other gods and, and in themselves, which was the reason why Isaiah pronounced God's great judgment of their coming ruin. But we get a sense, uh, as, as these judgments are produced, uh, as God's uh, warnings and judgment that God's warnings and judgments has a deeper purpose, which is a promise of salvation. Although the situation in Israel seemed dark and hopeless, Isaiah's prophecies contain a clear message of hope in the coming Messiah. It was a way of God calling his people back to himself to display his power and glory to Israel and the world that there is no other God besides Yahweh by their destruction and redemption. It was God's way to prove his loving kindness and faithfulness to a remnant through the promised Messiah Jesus Christ, who would usher in a new exodus. And this promised salvation is made most prominent right here in Isaiah 12. Here in Isaiah 12, in the shortest chapter of the entire book, is a concise yet powerful promise of God's clearest intention to save his people through and from judgment by his grace. Messiah. Chapter 12 is the climax of the first major part of the book, and this climax is the right occasion for celebration, because it's a song of praise to God for his future deliverance. So let's go ahead and read it now, Isaiah 12. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation, I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for He has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy. O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. So the question was, what can miserable Christians sing? Point number one, they can sing of the joy of salvation. Let me read for you verse 1 and 2 again. It says, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. One of the initial observations we can make from verse 1 is the fact that Isaiah is predicting what God's rebellious people will say. You will say. They're singing a song of thanksgiving, but they haven't sung it yet because they were far from grateful. It says they will praise the true God, but they were relying on false gods. Remember, these were people who did not understand. And did not perceive. They were wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. But God knew their true condition. He says of them in Isaiah eight: Their whole head is sick and their whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot and even to the head there is no soundness in it. They were utterly and thoroughly and miserably depraved. Well, what happens? That their haughtiness and lofty pride and wicked hearts become humbled and changed. The phrase, in that day, makes all the difference. Chapter 9, verse 17 says, In those days their mouth spoke folly, but in that day they will give thanks to God. It's a phrase that Isaiah repeats uh, throughout his prophecies, referring to the day when all that God declares will come to light and fruition. Although some regard this day as a, to a particular day in history when God interposes himself to deliver Israel from the Assyrian invasion, it's impossible to read the chapter before, chapter 11, without seeing that in this day, refers to a latter day, a future day of the Messiah, the anointed king, the promised king, that God himself would send. Verses like chapter seven fourteen gives us a clue who this promised king would be. It says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Passages like chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And these passages go on and on. Another example, chapter 11, 1 through 5. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This anointed king, this highly exalted king, would be the reason why the cursed lips of wicked men will turn to thankfulness and praise. But there is more amazingness in this verse, and we're still just on verse 1. Isaiah foreshadows something unimaginable to happen. See, in Isaiah five twenty-five, it says this, The anger of the Lord was kindled against His people, and He stretched out His hand against them and struck them, but it says, For all this, His anger has not turned away. In chapter 9, verse 11 and 12, it says, The Lord raises adversaries, and He stirs up His enemies, and devours Israel with, with open mouth. But it says, For all this, His anger has not turned away. In chapter 9, verse 17, it says, When the people still do not turn to Him, it says, The Lord cut off from Israel the head and the tail, for everyone is godless and an evildoer. But it says, For all this, His anger has not turned away. In chapter 9, 21, Through the wrath of God, the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched. And the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. Yet, it says, for all this, his anger has not turned away. Chapter 10, verse 4, God asks, What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. Even then... When nothing is left, absolutely, there's absolute destruction and ruin. It says, for all this, his anger has not turned away. Listen, brothers and sisters, God's anger against Israel and against wicked humanity is not pacified, not through destruction, not through judgment. But don't misunderstand. Ezekiel 33:11 says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. And God pleads, turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? So then, what happens? What happens that's so incredibly amazing that makes even the most depraved and wicked people, those who rejected their own God, after such great deliverances and provisions out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, through the desert, uh, to the promised land? to to King David's reign, to Solomon's glorious temple being built, yet still rejecting, still rebelling, disobeying. How were their hearts turned from looking to the earth to looking up to God in praise? Well, that's the reason why the following words of this passage, this verse, are probably the most glorious, extraordinary, comforting words in all of the Old Testament. It says this, For though you were angry with me, your anger. Turned away, Brothers and sisters, because God is holy and righteous, he cannot tolerate sin. He must punish sin or else he would not be good. If a criminal who commits an egregious crime comes before a judge in a court and the judge lets the criminal go free without a fair and just sentence, that judge would not be good. He would be a very bad judge. But because God is a just, right, and good judge... He punishes sin rightly and justly. Well, you may ask, what crime was committed that was so bad that makes God so angry that he would destroy his own creation and the world and send his people to eternal hell? I mean, that seems, sounds a little crazy. That sounds a little unfair. Well, let me illustrate. If I have a bad day and decide to take my frustration out on a random guy passing by and give him a good shove, you would call me a jerk. If I have a bad day and decide to uh, inappropriately uh, hit a child, I need to be taken to the police. If I have a bad day and decide to punch a president, I'd be taken to federal federal prison as a terrorist. But if I sin against a perfectly righteous God, who is perfectly loving and good, over and over and over again, deliberately disobeying his word, mocking him with my pride and self-centeredness, That's a punishment deserving of eternal judgment. The punishment of our crime escalates by whom the crime is committed against. It's only fair that our right sentence is eternal hell against an eternal God. That's why the phrase, Though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, are the most beautiful, incredible, merciful words, for us this morning, you see, the fundamental problem of the sinner is the wrath of God. Romans chapter one verse eighteen says, "For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. His just punishment cannot be satisfied but by the death of His own Son, the promised Messiah." John three sixteen, the famous verse that you know says, "For God so loved this world this way." That he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Isaiah 53 gives us a fuller, clearer picture of how God himself would send the Messiah, his own Son Jesus, to propitiate the punishment of our sin. It says this Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Brothers and sisters, friends and visitors, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the best news that you will ever hear, that God, who is holy and just, created all things in love for his own glory and our pleasure. But man, having been tempted by Satan, chose to trust in himself, wanting to be a god for himself, deliberately disobeying God's word. As a result, man was separated from God, completely helpless and incapable of saving himself from the vain and dissatisfying power and curse of sin. He turns to other gods, turns to other men, he turns to himself, but there is no help there, no escape, no cure, no satisfaction from the curse. But God, in his mercy, had a plan from the very beginning to redeem man from our miserable and meaningless rebellion and to forgive man for their sins. How? How does he do this? By sending his own son, Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man to live the life that we could not live and to die the death that we should have died. And he took our place as a substitute on the cross. He paid the debt we should have paid in eternal hell. And in that day, the anger of the Lord had turned from us to his son, Jesus, who took the full wrath of God upon himself. And he turned to the Father And pled, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And he willingly gave up his spirit, declaring, It is finished. But that's not the end of the story, is it? You know the story well. On the third day, Jesus Christ rose again from death, which meant that God accepted his sacrifice, conquering sin, Satan, and and, and, uh, death forever. And now, whosoever would repent and believe in him will not die and go to hell but participate in His resurrection and live the abundant life here on earth and forevermore. Hallelujah. This is the comfort of God. For though you are angry with me, your anger has turned away that you might comfort me. This is the blessed assurance. This is everlasting hope and peace with God. My salvation is not dependent on me, but on Him. As David Platt says, We have hope not in our merit, but only in His mercy. That's why we can testify this morning. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For God, the Lord God, is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. I had no strength to call my own, no willpower, no fitness, no intellect to grasp the mystery of salvation No way to save myself. I had no joy to sing. No life, no peace, no hope. I had nothing until He has become my salvation. I had no testimony. I had no salvation. But God is my salvation, as the verse says, because He has become my salvation. Amen? I will trust and will not be afraid. Remember, brothers and sisters, these words are words of prophecy. It hasn't occurred yet. In fact, this was written 700 years before Jesus was even born on earth. That's why Isaiah that's why God, through Isaiah, declared the words like uh, from chapters 41, 41 20, 26. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know and beforehand that we might say, He is right. Chapter uh, 43, verse 10, "You are my witnesses, declares the Lord and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe." and understand that I am He. Brothers and sisters, we can trust in God's words because every word that God has promised has been kept in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, our Lord and Savior. Amen? In the Hebrew, the original language that Isaiah was written, uh, the word you in verse 1 is in the singular form grammatically. You will say in that day. So, brothers and sisters, is this your personal testimony? God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. Then you have a reason to rejoice this morning. No matter what season of life, no matter what trial or circumstances come your way, you have a reason to rejoice. Amen? If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, or you're not sure that you are, we welcome you. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, There's no better place for you to be on a Sunday morning than with God's people under God's Word. But since you are here, and I believe that God brought you here, let me ask you a question. Do you have peace with God? Perhaps you felt the weight of His anger in the way that you lacked joy, in the way you feel empty, in the way you feel no ultimate hope. People have disappointed you. You have disappointed yourself. You have no security. You're always looking out for your own best interest because you can't trust anybody. You have no firm ground to stand on, no firm foundation. If Jesus isn't your substitute, if he isn't your advocate, your savior and Lord, the Bible says you will not stand in the judgment. The guilty will be punished. You will incur the full wrath of judgment and that you have reaped upon yourself against God because you have rejected his mercy by rejecting His Son. So I plead with you this morning, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who made an end of all your sin. This morning you are either forgiven or you're not. You are either clear in God's sight or else the wrath of God still abides on you. And I beg of you, do not rest until you know which one it is. Confess that you are a sinner. Repent of your sins today. Trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior this morning. If you want to know more about Jesus, please feel free to talk to Pastor Nathan or myself or anyone smiling next to you. Make sure you find out how you can trust Jesus as your Savior and how you can become a Christian. Amen? Christians, in your trials, in your waiting, is there any of you who have forgotten the joy of your salvation? The psalmist prayed, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And I pray that you will be reminded of the joy of your salvation. It's the greatest gift you ever did receive. Does this mean Christians can't be sad or that Christians can't mourn? Of course not. We live in a broken, fallen world. We're a mess unless the Lord holds us fast. But hear the words of Psalm 42, 11. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you uh, in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall praise him, my salvation, and my God. Number one, brothers and sisters, be reminded of the joy of our salvation. Number two, what can weary Christians sing? Number two, the joy of worship. The joy of worship. Read verse five with me, uh, verse three with me. It says, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. This verse is a beautiful uh, picture of how God, through his merciful salvation, uh, uh, we who are dirty and are cleansed by God from our sins, and how we who are parched and empty and calloused are now satisfied by his thirst-quenching drink from his wells of salvation. To describe to you a more vivid picture of this uh, verse, Charles and Norma Ellis, in their meditations on Isaiah, called a book called The Wells of Salvation, puts it this way. A person who casually turns on the faucet in an air-conditioned kitchen has little sense of the impact of these words of Isaiah on the Jews of his day. But Isaiah was writing directly to men and women who walked long under the mid-eastern sun, reflected from hot sands, and then reveled at the cool water drawn immediately from a well. As they read Isaiah's words, they could feel the cool refreshment of water moistening their lips, and dry throats, and splashing on their dusty feet. Another uh, commentator, Ray Orland Jr., illustrates it this way. The prospect of thirsty, weary, dirty people pulling up bucket after bucket of fresh, cool water in endless supply, drinking deeply, pouring it over their heads, dunking their faces into it, splashing one another. That is the vision of God's gift of salvation widely shared. Joyfully drawing water from the wells of salvation is the very life of God openly accessible to us, entering into our actual actual experience. And the deeper we drink, the greater our praise. Hence, I think this illustration of uh, this phrase of wells of salvation uh, shows us two ways in which God continues to sufficiently supply us even after salvation. Sub-point so one. God, we're talking about all this water. I need to drink some water. Sorry, I'm getting thirsty. Subpoint one: God is the source of salvation. There are several examples in Scripture where water is God's provision as the source of life. In Isaiah 41:17 it says, "When the poor and needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them." I will open rivers on bare heights and fountains and mist of valleys. I will make wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. Also in chapter 55, verse 1, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. See, as men come to God with their thirst, God will make water flow on barren mountains. He will cause springs to burst forth from parched ground. God will urge men to drink this water because it's free, because it's satisfying, because it's life-giving. Sub-point two, God is the source of growth and re- refreshment. I love the relational aspect of verse three, uh, uh, ver- that verse uh, three draws out for us. We continually draw, and he constantly provides. It reminds me of James 4.8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. But this relational aspect of drawing from the wells of salvation is not only in the sense of vertical relationship, it's actually also horizontal. Whereas in verse 1, the original Hebrew for you will say is singular in grammatical form, showing us that to enter salvation is an individual experience, but we get to enjoy the benefits of salvation as a community. The Hebrew word for you in verse 3, with joy you will draw, is now in plural form. So if you're from Texas like me, with joy, y'all will draw water from the wells of salvation. Have you guys met a, a an Asian, Asian cowboy before? <laughs> with joy, y'all will draw water from the wells of salvation. Isn't that amazing? One commentator notes it this way. The tiny beginnings of one man's salvation has grown into a company of the redeemed. One man's song modulates into a singing community. The Holy One, who was the sinner's greatest threat, now dwells in the midst of an exultant city as the life-giving and lifetime supply of well-being. Like so, the local church is a community of individuals that God has knit together by individuals covenanting together to reap the blessings of God's salvation together. And for the individual members to bless, benefit, and build one another up. The summer of 2015 was one of the most recent uh, difficult seasons of our lives, my family's life. Uh, Various things happened that summer to make the situation more difficult than usual, but namely, uh, we found out that my wife, Jerry, had miscarried and uh, missed uh, financial burdens and ministry transitions, searching for a new job, uncertainty about the future. Uh, in those days, I didn't even have words to say, much less words to sing. And there wasn't much sleeping going on in those days because all, uh, the three of us were cramped in Jerry's uh, parents' house in one room. And uh, all I did was just get on my face with a Bible open, praying, Lord, help me. Have mercy on me. Have I done something wrong? Have I sinned? Have I disobeyed? And all sorts of depressing thoughts were a constant battle for those several months of transition. Uh, but on one of those Sundays, we were at church, and we, happening, we, be, we were happen, uh, happened to be sitting right up in the front, and we were singing a song called, Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus. I noticed my wife, Jerry, crying next to me while singing, and it stirred my heart to sing the words of the hymn to her. The words went like this. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love, leading onward, leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. Being encouraged by the singing, we happened to catch a glimpse of our senior pastor, Pastor Mark, looking at Jerry, and I noticed that he was crying too as he was singing. We were singing, we were praising, praying, encouraging, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another, one miserable soul to another miserable soul, one weary heart to another weary heart, hoping, trusting, and pointing one another to the source and supply of life, our Lord Jesus Christ. My church was a well of salvation for our dry and parched soul, a dear refuge of our weary souls in those days. Well, look at us now, three and a half years later, we're doing well by God's grace, thankful to be serving as an elder at my church, preaching, learning, growing, praying, and waiting. And we sing these songs with a bit more gusto now. We know better now the joy of singing, the joy of corporate worship, uh, these songs to one another together. Amen? With joy, you all will draw from the water, draw water from the wells of salvation together. The psalmist testifies in Psalm 30, verse 11 through 12, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosened my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent, O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Brothers and sisters, isn't it such a joy to be a member of this local church? To lean on each other through our hardships and sorrows and good times and bad? I want to ask you this morning, are you thankful for the well of Restoration Church? And how in his faithfulness and grace, the Lord has established and sustained this church in the heart of D.C., to satiate the thirst of many, many weary souls. I pray that the Lord will continue to bless you in that. Christians, how often do you joyfully draw from the wells of salvation? You notice it says wells of salvation. This doesn't mean that there are many paths or ways to salvation. There's only one way, but many wells of salvation to encourage and refresh us along the way. This is in line with Philippians 2.12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So one of the best ways you can draw from a well of salvation is to regularly study God's Word. Uh, do you read the Bible regularly? Do you spend time meditating on what you read? Do you memorize Scripture? Let me ask you, when's the last time you spent drinking deep from the well of of the book of Isaiah. It's a glorious book. I found out that it takes an average of three and a half hours to read the book in its entirety, the book of Isaiah, 66 chapters. So if 66 chapters in three and a half hours sounds overwhelming to you, you can split it up into sections. 3.5 divided by 6 equals 35 minutes a day. So you could get the whole thing read in six days just by reading it for 35 minutes. I also found out that if you read the Bible... 30 minutes a day in six days, you can read the entire Bible three times a year. Did you know that? 30 minutes a day of devotion and dedication to drink deep from a well of salvation. In addition, do you drink deep from the well of salvation by regularly teaching or preaching God's Word? So, as a member of this church, are you involved in regularly uh, discipling one another, drawing from Scripture? Discipleship is God's provision for God's people to regularly drink deep. In addition, you might attend Bible studies, join a small group or a community group, or read the Bible with a teen or somebody who you can teach the Bible to. Amen? If you're not a Christian, what do you do when the wells of life runs dry? When you exhaust all your resources, all your emotional capital? What do you do? You 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 may have wondered, I mean, does anything in this life truly uh, give you deep satisfaction? Money, sex, pornography, alcohol, drugs, power. See, those things are not meant to fill you up or satisfy you. It can't. It's not supposed to. That's why the more you have it, the more you want it. But Jesus says in John 4.13, Whoever drinks of this water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, have you lost the joy to sing? Or are you in a place where joy seems far away and distant? We often forget that the joy of corporate worship was designed to guard us against apathy and complacency, don't we? It's because we in our sinful state seek to be self-centered and self-focused, but God calls into community, unity, and building up. So, brothers and sisters, drink deep from the source and supply of life. The Father seeks those who worship him in spirit and in truth. So, draw and drink from the source of life, Jesus, and you will find rest for your souls. Number two, what can weary Christians sing? The rich and deep joys of corporate worship. Finally, point three, and this is a lot shorter. What can restless Christians sing? We can sing of the joys of evangelism, the joy of of evangelism. Verses four through six says, and you all, y'all, will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. What I mean by the joy of evangelism is the joy of our witness. When we remember God's word, the word of our salvation, respond to God in worship, we reflect God's glory through our witness, through our proclamation, through our evangelism. See, evangelism is the natural overflow of our salvation and worship, isn't it? It just naturally comes out when our hearts are filled with words of salvation, with, with the truth of salvation, the gospel and when we respond in worship, natural outflow is evangelism. Church history uh, sh- has shown through uh, g- great movements of God, works of God, always results in missions. After all, the two are directly related. John Piper, you guys know this famous quote, missions exist because worship doesn't. See, the end goal is worship. They are directly uh, related. See, every single one of us who became a Christian was a result of someone else bringing us the gospel, the good news, the evangel. So I want to ask you this morning, who will you lead to Jesus? It won't happen if you don't share. It won't happen if you don't speak. If you don't proclaim the joy of your salvation and the joy of your worship, it won't happen, at least not through you. Well, what should we be proclaiming? Subpoint one. We should proclaim his works among the peoples. That's verse 4 through 5. Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praise to the Lord for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. That's what it says. Our task is to make known, proclaim Jesus' finished work on the cross. His death and resurrection and redemption for, uh, uh, of peoples of all nation, tribe, people, and language so that praises to the Lord can be lifted up from all, among all peoples of God. We should make known that this has been the eternal plan of, of God's redemption from the very beginning. This is why racism and prejudice has no place in the church. And in our day, we can't be complacent or apathetic regarding evangelism of all nations. We can't be colorblind. We must be color conscious. We are commanded to make disciples of all nations. And praise God, you live in the most, one of the most ethnically diverse regions in the East Coast. You have an advantage, you have a privilege to take this gospel to the ends of the earth by all the people that God has brought here. So you should be intentional in our evangelism and our hospitality. 2nd subpoint: we should proclaim the greatness of Christ in our midst. Look at verse 6, it says, Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Remember, Isaiah chapter 12 is a prophecy, but for us who are living in post-Christ first coming, we have the full perspective and insight of his salvific work. Our lives are completely transformed in the revelation that God is with us, now by the Holy Spirit. The old things have passed away and the new things have come. So this is our witness of him, lives that look like him, words that proclaim him, and works that glorify him and builds up his church. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, have you lost or forgotten the joy of evangelism? This may be one of the most frequent Christian struggle. When is the last time you share the gospel? Has it been a week? Has it been a month? A year? I'm not talking about legalism or numbers, but shouldn't our prayers be like Paul's in Romans 10.1? Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for them that they may be saved. Do you pray for someone's salvation regularly? Do you pray that God will give you an opportunity to share the good news with someone this week? Second Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, In a favorable time I listen to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now, today, is the day of salvation. In fact, the reason why we exist on earth today as Christians is to share the good news with someone. So fathers, continue to faithfully teach your family. Mothers, continue to faithfully disciple your children. Single people, continue to bless one another through faithful ministry of, word, of your word and service. But pray also, all of you, that souls will be saved. In an age of negative uses of social media... I love to share, a thing, uh, share uh, use social media on things that I love, to share things that I love. And in fact, it's the overflow of my heart. So top three things that I love to share on social media. God, Bible verses and scripture and quotes. Children, I'm one of those guys that post like 10 pictures a day of my kids, I'm sorry. And coffee. Uh, my wife is naturally included in there somewhere, but I don't like to share her too much with other people. So just God, children, coffee. These are the overflows of my heart. I can't help but share these things that I love because they're in my heart. My dear, beloved church family, I'm trying to share with you the joy of our witness, the joys of our evangelism. How can we do this together better as a church family? I want to recommend you some resources. Read Andy Johnson's book on missions. Read J.I. Packer's Evangelism and Sovereignty of God. Read Max Stiles' Evangelism strategize together over lunch today, this afternoon, how you can be a better witness to your family, friends, and co-workers. And finally, furthermore, sub-point three, this is the last one, we proclaim His return. Did you notice how our proclamation intensifies in verse 6? Shout, sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. The reason is because our great Lord, the Holy One of Israel in our midst, is coming back again to sovereignly rule and reign over the new heaven and the new earth. I love that word, inhabitant of Zion. Inhabitant, not inhabitants. See, in the original Hebrew is once again referred in the singular form, this time in the feminine form. See, the church, as the bride of Christ, looks forward to Christ, the bridegroom. We have hope, we have great joy, because Jesus is coming back again. This is the joy of our proclamation and witness that Jesus is indeed coming again. This is the reason why the church can always look up and look above and look forward, because Jesus is coming again. The Bible says, in that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. In that day, faith will turn to sight. In that day when He appears, when Jesus appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is, as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen? And in that day, all of our suffering, all of our enduring, all of our waiting, all of our persecution will be justified and fully satisfied when He returns. Amen? Brothers and sisters, Isaiah 12 is a song that we will sing in future glory, but it's a song that we can sing of today. What a day it will be. What a joy we have to sing when all of our sorrows will be turned to laughter and joy and shouting His praises. Isaiah 25, it says, of that day He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth it'll be a great day of rejoicing because the holy one of israel will be in our midst we should conclude what can miserable weary restless christians sing the amazing joy of salvation the awesome joy of worship the great joy of evangelism. It's so easy for us to forget these foundational gifts from God. But do not not be mistaken. God knows how hard it is. He knows you're waiting. He knows you're struggling. But until that day, drink deep from the wells of salvation and remember our joys in Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to rejoice in You. For those of us who are in difficult places, cause them to look upon the author and perfecter of faith this morning. Be their strength, be their song, be their salvation. For those of us who come to draw water from the well of Restoration Church this morning, cause them to drink deep these joys and proclaim faithfully your gospel out of the abundant outflow of their hearts. We pray for those who do not know you. Let today be the day of their repentance and salvation. For your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen.